Let me ask you to open up your Bibles and let's turn again to the book of Romans in chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. And we come again to this incredibly important verse as we are working our way verse by verse through this book of Romans. And we've come to Romans 10 verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you may be worried, wondering if your pastor has gotten stuck. This is now the fourth sermon on these three key words, Jesus is Lord. And I promise that I'm not like an old record or an old CD that just keeps skipping at the same place. Um, We have spent three weeks unpacking what is probably the central tenet of the Christian faith. Jesus is Lord. And what I want to do is have two messages of just practical, okay, so what, application, implication. So we started looking at Jesus as Lord on a Lord's Supper Sunday. We will finish next week looking at Jesus as Lord on a Lord's Supper Sunday. And then I promise we will move on from this verse. But we will not move on from this truth. Because Jesus is Lord hangs over every part of the Bible. In fact, this issue of the lordship of Jesus Christ continues to cause controversy. Um, I have opened up my messages over the last several weeks looking back at ancient times and implications of confessing Jesus as Lord if you were a Christian in the Roman Empire. But even today, this can be a very dangerous thing. Certainly in many parts of the world, Uh, especially in the Middle East, confessing Jesus as Lord will get your head chopped off or get you summarily executed. But even in the last few weeks, these three words have been at the center of debate. And of all places, Sydney, Australia. Uh, The University of Sydney is a major university there in Australia. It has many student groups on that university campus. One of those student groups is a Christian organization called the Evangelical Student Union. And like many Christian college organizations, the Evangelical Student Union has weekly worship services. They host small group Bible studies on campus. They try and arrange service projects and fun outings and things like that. And anyone on campus that wants to come participate in one of the activities of this Christian college campus ministry, people are welcome. Everyone's welcome to come and participate. But here's the issue. The issue is that to be a member of the Evangelical Student Union at Sydney University, and therefore to be eligible to be a leader, you have to sign a doctrinal statement. And how narrow is this doctrinal statement? What do these students who want to be members and perhaps leaders of the Evangelical Student Union have to sign to qualify? Three words. Jesus is Lord. It's the only requirement to be a member, the only requirement to qualify for leadership. You must agree that Jesus is Lord. Well, now the University of Sydney's governing student union, which oversees all of the campus student organizations, has declared that requiring members to sign those three words is an act of discrimination. 
Their argument is that every club campus must allow anyone on campus to join and therefore anyone on campus to be allowed to lead the organization. The Christians are pointing out that this is a democratic club where the members vote to make decisions. So having non-Christians voting to make decisions about what a Christian organization should do doesn't make sense. But the governing body issued an ultimatum just over a month ago now. Either get rid of those three words, Jesus is Lord, or be deregistered from the university and lose all the privileges of campus resources, rooms to meet in, all of those privileges. So the Evangelical Student Union met, 75 members voted, and in a vote 74 to 1, they voted to keep the statement in their constitution and to keep requiring new members to at least believe that Jesus is is Lord. And when I last checked, they are now waiting to see what the university will do and what the consequences will be. So these three words still divide people. Uh, Those who confess Jesus as Lord love this truth. We, We glory in this truth. But the rest of the world wonders why we have to be so exclusive. It's great that you think Jesus is Lord. I am glad that that is true for you. But don't force your truth on me. Don't tell others that they should believe the same thing. Don't even require potential members of your own ministries to believe such things. That's intolerant. That's discrimination. But as we've already seen, Jesus is Lord. And he's Lord of all including those who don't want to acknowledge him as Lord. Three weeks ago, we saw the fact of Christ's lordship. You and I don't make Jesus Lord. It is God who made Jesus Lord. God raised him from the dead, exalted him over all things. Jesus sits on throne of the universe as Lord over all. Two weeks ago, we saw the nature of Christ's lordship. It's an absolute lordship. There's no higher throne than the throne of King Jesus. It's a comprehensive lordship. Christ's rule extends to to the microscopic world, and his rule extends to black holes and galaxies and supernovas. It's a human lordship. The king of kings is one of us, a human being, who can relate to us, who can sympathize with us. Christ's lordship is an earned lordship. Christ proved himself worthy of the throne by being the only human being who ever came to earth and lived in complete obedience to God, even when that obedience meant dying on a cross. And Christ's lordship is a spiritual lordship. From his throne, Christ sends the Holy Spirit to accomplish his purposes. And then last week we saw the character of Christ's lordship. We saw that Jesus is the kind of Lord that we should all want. He is the ideal Lord. He is the standard of what a person in authority should be. He is what we want our political candidates to be. He's the kind of presidential candidate we would want to vote for. He is good. He is just. He is merciful. He loves his people. And he uses his power to serve their welfare. So this morning, 
we're now going to look at the implication of the fact that Jesus is Lord, namely, that we should submit to Him as Lord. Our theme this morning is submission to Christ's Lordship. Because that's what we're doing when we truly confess Jesus as Lord. We are declaring our place of submission. We are declaring our willingness to bow the knee to Him. Rebels don't call Jesus Lord. Rebels don't want to acknowledge the truth that there was a real man who came and lived a perfect life and died on a cross and was raised from the dead three days later and now is exalted in the highest place of the world. Rebels don't want to hear that. They don't want to acknowledge that because that means they have to deal with that. But Christians are those who have been humbled and who have been brought to see that Jesus as Lord is the greatest truth in the history of the world. Put simply, when we confess Jesus is Lord, we are acknowledging that it is our duty and our delight to bow the knee to Him and to submit to Him. So, four biblical truths that will help us understand this aspect of confessing Jesus as Lord. And here they are. Number one, submitting to Jesus as Lord is fundamental and essential to salvation. Let me be crystal clear on that and just say it again. Submitting to Jesus as Lord is fundamental and essential to salvation. It amazes me that this was ever controversial, but especially in the 70s and the 80s and in some ways still to our day, this is a matter that many think is up for debate. There are some who would have you believe that the way of salvation is simply to receive salvation from Jesus with no commitment on your part. You can receive salvation, you can pray a prayer, get baptized, walk an aisle, and then go out in the world and live like the devil, and you're still saved. You can have Christ as your Savior and you can utterly reject Him as your Lord and still be okay. Zane Hodges, back in 1980, wrote a book called The Hungry Inherit. And in that book, he made the claim that those who take Jesus as their Lord and seek to obey Him, they will inherit the earth. Those who only take Jesus as their Savior, well, they won't inherit the earth, but they will still live on it when it becomes paradise. In other words, he argued there are two classes of Christians. There's the Christian who takes Jesus as Savior, but never bows the knee to Jesus as Lord. Still a Christian, still saved, just not a holy kind of Christian. And then there's the kind of Christian who not only says, yes, I want to be saved and receive salvation, but also bows the knee to Jesus as Lord. And that is the, the higher class of Christian. Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. Remember this story? Woman at the well in Samaria. Jesus comes to her and he says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Listen 
to what Zane Hodges said about those verses. He says, It is hard not to be impressed with the magnificent simplicity of the transaction which Jesus proposes to this sin-laden Samaritan woman. It's all a matter of giving and receiving with no conditions attached. There is no effort to extract from the woman a promise to correct her immoral life. If she wants this water, she can have it. It is free. It must be emphasized that there is no call here for surrender, no call here for submission, no call here for acknowledgement of Christ's lordship or anything else of this kind. In other words, this man, Zane Hodges, and others with him, mainly coming out of Dallas Seminary, taught that you could be saved apart from any commitment to Jesus on your part. And especially in the 80s, this teaching began to infiltrate many, many local churches in the United States. So you've heard the name maybe John MacArthur. John MacArthur responded with a book in 1988. I first read it in 2000. I was a freshman in college, and I was visiting home, and sure enough, my parents had decided they were moving, so I left home, and they decided to move, and so I went with them down to southern Alabama. People call it L.A. there, L.A., lower Alabama. They say we live in L.A., so I was down in L.A., and my parents were out looking at houses, and I decided to just stay in the hotel room and read this book, so I remember lying across his hotel bed, reading this book called The Gospel According to Jesus and having my life radically turned upside down by it. And MacArthur basically responded to Zane Hodges, and he went through passage after passage after passage after passage, only in the Gospels. He restricted his view only to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. And he just went through passage and showed how Jesus taught again and again that there is no salvation apart from true repentance and surrendering to Jesus Christ. So take a look at the parable of the four soils, right? The message of salvation comes to four different kinds of people. One of the four has a heart that's it's, it's solid as that road out there. So the gospel comes and it just bounces right off. Okay, But the other three soils all receive the gospel. They all receive the seed. But one is shallow. When troubles come, it doesn't happen. Right? The flower dies. The other is, is trying to grow among thorns and worldliness chokes the plant and the plant dies in other words it was only the one where the soil where the the soil was ready to receive the seed where the plant endured where the plant produced fruit that was the true believer the true christian the one that was saved in other words jesus taught again and again in that parable and many others that it is the one who bows to him the one who actually shows allegiance to him that is truly saved. What does Romans 10, 9 say? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There is no salvation. There is no going to heaven apart from a real, confessional, confictional, heartfelt belief. Jesus is Lord, and I cannot reject him as Lord and still be saved. And yet, you know what this looks like. It happens all the time. 
It looks like the person who prays a sinner's prayer, who makes a commitment at some summer camp, who gets baptized, who walks in the aisle, and, and then they just say, okay, I'm saved. And then they just go on living their lives without a care for what Jesus says. They don't read their Bibles. They don't pray. They're not faithful to church. They don't forgive others. They don't love their enemies. But they believe they're saved because they, they prayed the prayer. There's no allegiance to Jesus Christ. And when our society begins to turn against Christians, as it's doing now, their faith won't hold up. They won't stand. Jesus said, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 37, 38. He also said, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 33. In other words, to be a disciple of Christ, to be a Christian, you have to be willing to put everything on the table. Everything on the table. You have to be willing to hold on to everything loosely, willing at any moment. If Jesus says, get rid of it, you get rid of it. If Jesus says, go here, you go here. If Jesus says, do that, you do that. Everything on the table. This is what it means to be saved. Wonderfully surrendered to Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, verse 4, Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected by this we may know that we are in him that's the question how can I know if I'm saved how can I know if I'm really going to heaven how can I know if God is my God and if I am okay how can I know if I am in him by this we may know that we are in him Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Yes, we are saved by faith alone, but faith trusts Jesus, and faith trusts Jesus as Lord. Faith trusts the Jesus who sits on the throne, who has the whole world in his hands, and who has the authority to give commands. We trust the one who knows what is best for us. We trust the one who is smarter than us, who is wiser than us, who loves us more than we love ourselves. We trust the one before whom we will one day stand and give an account. We are safe and we are saved because we are trusting in the one who is our Savior. But the reason he is able to save is because he is the Lord. He has all power. Let me be as pointed and as clear as I can. Dear friend, have you come to the place of owning Jesus as Lord? Are you a disciple? Are you a follower? Are you a servant of Christ? Or are you trying to have salvation while continuing to live an unrepentant, I'll do it my way, ignore Christ's commands kind of life? 
Submitting to Jesus as Lord is fundamental and essential to salvation. If you haven't done so, you're lost. You need to be born again, and you need to be converted. I promise we won't spend as much time on the other points, but that one is huge. And so that's why we spend a lot of time there. Number two, submission to Jesus as Lord must be a basic root-level attitude of the heart. Submission to Jesus as Lord must be a basic root-level attitude of the heart. It's not as if someone becomes a Christian and immediately every part of their life is in perfect obedience to Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? But that's not how it works. When we first become a Christian, there is so much we don't even know When I first became a Christian, there were so many things I was doing wrong that I didn't even know they were wrong. When I became a Christian, there were so many things I should have been doing that I didn't even know that I should have been doing. And even in the things that I did know were wrong, and even in the things that I did know were right, I was struggling, even after becoming a Christian, to obey Christ. It would be great if when we came to Jesus... We rose up from the waters of baptism and immediately only words came out of our mouths that give grace to others, right? We come up out of the baptismal waters and from that moment forward, we only think thoughts that serve the goodness of God and other people. That's just not how it is. Complete submission to Christ does not happen at conversion. In fact, complete submission to Christ doesn't happen in this life at all, does it? We grow (laughs) through God's grace, through prayer, through the Bible, through Christian fellowship and the blessings of the local church, through trials and suffering and good books and Christian hymns and thousand other means. Christ grows us up so that I hope you control your tongue better now than when you were first saved. I I hope that you can see that you've grown in patience from who you used to be to who you are now. But even now, don't we just feel how far we fall short? Don't we just feel how little we've grown? We love Jesus. We know He's a good Lord. We know His every command is for our good. We want to be obedient, but we mess up. We get led astray by our flesh and by the world and by the devil. So complete submission to Jesus Christ doesn't happen at conversion and it doesn't happen in this life at all. But here is what does happen the moment you are converted. Here is what does happen the moment you are born again and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And every Christian, if you're here and you're a Christian, the moment you first believed, if it was of God, you suddenly had a new heart attitude that wanted to be completely obedient and surrendered to Jesus. Do you have it? We know that we're not as obedient as we ought to be. But here's the mark of a true Christian. He or she wants to be. This is what we're praying for. This is, this is what we cry out to God about. God, make me more faithful. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better friend. I want to be a better leader and neighbor. And, 
And we're calling out to God saying, God, help me be more obedient to Jesus because His ways are good. His ways are best. A false Christian calls Jesus Lord but refuses to submit certain parts of his life to Christ. The false Christian calls Jesus Savior but doesn't want Jesus telling him what to do with his sex life. The false Christian doesn't want Jesus telling him what to do with his money. The false Christian doesn't want Jesus involved in what movies I choose to watch and what not to watch. Jesus, I thank you for saving me, but there are some parts of my life that are off limits to you. That's the false Christian. The true Christian says the opposite. All that I am, as best as I can be, I surrender it to you, Jesus. I bow my whole self to you, my whole life before you. I am so far from perfect. I am still struggling. I am still messing up. But at the core of who I am, I want to be obedient to you. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Take my hands, let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my feet, let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Take my voice, let me sing always only for my king. Take my lips, let them be filled with messages from thee. Take my silver, take my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as you choose. Take my will, make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own, it shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Check yourself. Because what we're dealing here, dealing with here is the nature of true repentance. Have you ever truly repented? Have you ever truly got so sick and tired of living in your sin that you came to Jesus and said, I am ready to lay it all before you and to follow you and for you to heal me and for me to be your disciple? I wonder if you hear me preaching this and you're responding with defensiveness in your heart. Because that's the opposite of what we want. That's a bad sign. You could hear what I'm saying. You could be humbling yourself before God, saying, God, that's me. I want to be faithful. I want to follow Jesus and be be the kind of person I ought to be. But then there's the kind of person who responds with defensiveness. It's, it's, it's pride coming to expression before God. Yes, God, I know I keep committing that sin, but you've seen all the pressure I've been under. It's making an excuse. Yes, God, I know I committed that sin, but you're the one who isn't helping me out. That's blaming God. Yes, God, I committed that sin, but actually I'm not sure that what I did really qualifies as a sin. I mean, it's kind of gray. That's playing fast and loose with the law of God. Yes, God, I committed that sin, but I promise it was the last time and I'm going to change tomorrow. That's trying to justify your sin with a promise that you cannot and will not keep. All of these are forms of self-defense before God that are the opposite of true repentance. At bottom, if we are truly Christians, 
This is our heart attitude. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Is that you? Third, submission to Jesus as Lord is a progressive process of Christ conquering every rebel desire. It is a progressive process. The more we grow, the more we discover areas of our lives that are out of sync with Christ's will. The more we grow, the more we find the strength and the power to say no to temptation and to conform more areas of our lives to his will. So I picture it as as if you're sweeping a room and you're getting the dust out. And then as you grow in Christ, it's kind of like you open the blinds a little bit higher and a little more sunlight comes into the room and you begin to see more dust that you've missed that needs to be dealt with. And you begin working on that and dealing with that. And then as you grow in Christ, the blinds raise a little higher, more light comes in, and you see even more areas in which there is filth that needs to be dealt with so that the more we grow, the more we are learning how far we are from Christ-likeness. And yet, we are seeking to submit every part of our lives to him. Consider your callings. Are you fulfilling the callings that Christ would have you to fulfill? If he has made you a husband or a wife, a father or a mother, then you know that you are called to fulfill those callings above almost all others. Even if it means a lot of hard work and sacrifice to provide for your family, even if it means having to deny yourself free time so that your family can have clean clothes and a warmer home, even if it means having to pass up on certain dreams that you've had. Submitting to Christ means giving your all to the callings that He has placed upon you. His will trumps your will. And this is wonderful. Because his will has your greatest happiness in view. How many Christians have struggled with those parts of their lives Christ has called them to give up for his sake? How many Christians have had to leave their dream job? How many Christians have had to give up their love affair with drink? Or their affinity for vulgar jokes? Or their passion for certain types of entertainment? How many Christians have made the difficult choice to obey Jesus rather than to keep making money in an illicit way? Some have had to give up their political views, views that they once cared about very much in order to follow Christ. Others have had to give up entire lifestyles. As Christians have grown in following Jesus, the Spirit has convicted them of the need to reconcile with folks that they once wronged they've had to forgive wrongs done against them that they never wanted to forgive friends following jesus is costly and sometimes it's hard but every christian would tell you that on the other side of obedience is the joy of realizing that christ's way was truly the best way The heart of a Christian is like that of David. I find my delight in your commandments. Oh, how I love your law. 
It is my meditation all the day. I love your commandments above gold, fine gold. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. All from Psalm 119. When we trust Jesus enough to actually do what he says, that is when our relationship with him blossoms. It is in our obedience as he proves himself good and faithful and true to us over and over again that we come to know what real love looks like and feels like. In a marriage, a husband and wife that won't listen to each other or submit to each other will find their relationship strained. In our relationship with the Lord, our intimacy with Him will be as close and as precious as our obedience to Him. The more we trust Him and do what He says, the more we will find Him shedding abroad in our hearts the kind of security and confidence and warmth that only He can give. So do you want to be nearer to Christ? Do you want to experience more of His love? Intimacy with Christ is forever connected to, tied to, your willingness to trust Him enough to do what He says and to be obedient. Here is a word for the Christian living in disobedience. Until you change, you will never have real grounds for assurance of your salvation. And you'll never know true intimacy with Christ. Alexander the Great and his troops were engaged in a terrible battle. And as the battle raged on in all its ferocity, one of Alexander's soldiers got scared and fled. The soldier was a coward. And after the battle had ended, Alexander's men found the deserter and brought him before the great general. And as this young man stood trembling in the tent of Alexander the Great, he heard these words, Son, why did you run? The young man replied, I was afraid. Alexander said, I see. Tell me your name. And the boy, embarrassed, mumbled his answer. And Alexander the Great, not a fan of folks mumbling when they were in his presence, said, Speak up. I asked you your name. What is your name? And the young man looked up at him and said, My name is Alexander. Alexander the Great took in that information and then looked directly at the boy and said, Son, either change your behavior or change your name. Change your behavior or change your name. Dear friends, do not wear the name Christian. Do not confess Jesus as Lord if you are going to be living in disobedience. The true believer, the true Christian, longs to be conformed perfectly to Christ's will. The true Christian is intentional and zealous about making use of the means of grace to grow up and to be more obedient. The false Christian is happy to live in hypocrisy. The true Christian mourns his hypocrisy, mourns every sin, and can't wait for the day when his behavior will perfectly match his name. The name Christian. 
And in the new heavens and the new earth, this will be true of us. We will be true Christians, true followers of Christ. And for the first time, our entire lives will be marked by perfect obedience. Our thoughts, our words, our attitudes, all will be pure and blameless. This is our fourth and final point. I'm only stating it. I'm not even going to discuss it. Submission to Jesus as Lord will be perfected in us on the day we die or the day Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. Don't you long for that day. But until it comes, we can make progress, we can grow, and every act of obedience will have God's blessing, serving not only our eternal happiness, but the welfare of those we love and the welfare of those we encounter. And so with our hope set on that day, when we will be perfectly glorified, let us look to Jesus as Lord now and grow in surrendering every area of our lives to him. What do you need to surrender this morning? What rebellion still exists in you? Repent and obey Jesus in that area of your life and he will prove to you that his ways are good and right and blessed. He will be found faithful by you. I promise. Let's pray.